I can grab a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 9 as we continue through the Gospel of Mark. And as you turn there, let me just lead in prayer for our time in the Word here. Father, we thank you that we have your Word given to us, that we can read and study and know you. And so we ask that through the preaching and teaching of your Word this morning that we would be changed people that your spirit would take your word, convict, and transform us, that we would live lives more for you, for your glory, that we'd be conformed to the image of Christ, and God, may you be praised as a result. And so, thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. All right, we are in Mark chapter 9 this morning. Now, a quick review of, of where we've been so we can see how things fit together Back in chapter 8 and verse 29, we see that the disciples, Peter, confessed that Jesus was the Christ, right? He is the Messiah. This is a very exciting thing for them to come to. The Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah for for years and years. Then shortly after that, in verse 31, we see that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And then he also, shortly after that, in verse 34, says to his disciples, you in sorts will will need to die and rise as well, okay? You'll need to take up your cross to follow me. Then in chapter 9, we see this transfiguration up on the mountain. Jesus is unveiled. His glory is revealed to these disciples. God the Father speaks, says, listen to him, all right? Listen to him, this all-glorious one. You are to listen to him now and put into action what you hear. As we continue on, then they come down the mountain. There's a healing of a, a demon-possessed boy, and Jesus teaches them about faith and believing in Jesus, right? And this is the basis now for God's kingdom. This is the foundation for life in Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ, to trust in him. And so now we come to verse 30, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. We're going to take it a verse or two at a time as we work our way through the passage here. And so Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. And let's pause right there. So now Jesus is going to, his public ministry is kind of done. It's wrapping up. And Jesus now wants time alone with his disciples so he could really teach them and speak to them. So he's now on his way towards Jerusalem, where he will die and rise again. So this is kind of the final journey towards Jerusalem. And he wants this time with the the disciples, who now understand that he is the Christ, that he is the predicted Messiah. So they acknowledge who Jesus is. But Jesus has some things to teach them about his kingdom and what it is really going to be like. And so he'll be teaching his disciples here and training them, but it'll be something different than what they're expecting. All right, This could be different than what they had learned from the religious leaders at the time about what this Messiah, this Christ, would be all about and what his kingdom would be all about. All right, So quickly, kids, we're not going to have you come up this morning, but I want you to stand up right where you are, kids. Stand up and look up here. All right? Jesus is going to be teaching about the kingdom, his kingdom. It's not a normal, everyday kind of kingdom, 
All right, this could be a different kingdom. It's a very special kingdom. All right, so this morning we're going to call it an upside down kingdom. All right, take your thumbs, kids, and everyone else, you can participate too. It's okay. If we all do it together, then, then nobody's looking. So up, side, down. Ready? Up, side, down. So this upside down kingdom, things will be different. It's not going to be as they would anticipate. It's going to be very opposite. And so because it's going to be opposite, we're going to call it an upside-down kingdom. All right? Great. You can have a seat. Thanks. All right? So kids, be listening for that throughout the message. Upside-down kingdom. All right? So Jesus takes the disciples, he takes their earthly, worldly thinking, and he flips it upside-down. And we're going to see that this is going to be kind of an attack on their pride. And we're going to get some lessons here in humility. Okay, so verse 31, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So this Son of Man is Jesus, right? And it says he's going to be delivered into their hands. If you have a different version, it might say betrayed. It might be that word betrayed, okay? This word is to be delivered up or handed over in a way where it's given over to the power of someone else, okay? He's going to be delivered up. Now, if your version says betrayed, usually when we think of Jesus being betrayed, what do we think of? Judas, right? The disciple Judas who betrayed Jesus, turned him in for a bag of money, right? But this verse is not talking about Judas here. This verse is talking about God the Father delivering Jesus up, handing him over to the power of men in order to be a sin offering for these disciples and for you and for me. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The power is going to be transferred, and they're going to kill him. We see in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it reads, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So this is not outside of God the Father's plan. He's not surprised by this. This is what he is purposefully doing. All right, he's handing them over. And Jesus tells his disciples this. Right? I'm going to be handed over to the power of men. They're going to kill me, but after three days I'm going to rise again. All right? Pretty simple, pretty straightforward and to the point. And yet, the disciples we see here don't understand. They don't understand these simple things. And, and why wouldn't they understand? They didn't understand because this did not meet their expectation. They were expecting this Messiah, this Christ, to come and rule and reign, to be a powering, conquering king, not to be killed, not to die. They thought this was going to be someone who would save them from the oppression of the the Roman government. But instead, he's going to be delivered over into their hands. And dying just didn't fit their thinking. This was upside-down kingdom thinking. 
Now, if I place myself in the disciples' place, I'm probably right there with them. Not really understanding, right? This doesn't fit the thinking. It's a hard thing to understand. A humble, self-sacrificing Messiah was a hard concept. It didn't make a lot of sense at the time when they were expecting a coming king to rule and to reign. You know, even today as we share truth with unbelievers, as we share the gospel, we have to understand that this is kind of a hard thing to understand, right? Jesus, 2,000 years ago, died on the cross and he was raised again so that you can have forgiveness of your sin, you can live with God forever. That could be a hard thing to understand. And so as we share that with others, we have to understand these are hard things, all right? But they did not understand. They're afraid to ask them. All right, so if you have notes on the bulletin, there's a fill in the blank there. Jesus now is going to be addressing pride. He's going to be addressing their pride. Verse 33. So they're traveling. As they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house... He asked them, the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So think with me. Jesus, they've seen him as the exalted, glorious one. He says, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. The disciples should have been contemplating this. Jesus is going to die and rise again. But instead of contemplating this, what were they doing? I'm going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom, right? Totally self-focused. They weren't concerned with his death and his resurrection. They weren't concerned with the significance of that. No, no, no. They were arguing about which one of them was greatest. A self-focus, a prideful self-focused. These disciples were with the greatest one ever in all of eternity, God himself in flesh, the greatest one ever was with them in their presence and they're concerned about themselves and where they rank, where their status is. They should have been concerned with Jesus and how great and glorious he was, but they totally missed it. Focused on self. What is my status? Where do I rank in these things? Now, I have an assumption here. I may be right, I may be wrong, I don't know. But my assumption is that this argument, that some of this tension probably initiated with Peter and James and John, right? I think their pride started rising up and spewing forward after this mountaintop experience, right? They had been up on the mountaintop, only those three with Jesus. They saw him unveiled, his glory revealed, right? And I think their pride started puffing up a little bit. Oh, we, we must be greater than these other disciples, right? We saw Jesus transfigured. We saw his glory. We heard God speak. You other disciples, you couldn't even cast out that demon that was in that boy. We must be greater. They elevated themselves. We must be more important than you. And so these disciples now are arguing about their status. Which one of them is greatest? 
as they stand in the presence of Jesus himself. And so here's a question for you to ponder this morning. Where does your pride show forth? When does your pride make its appearance? So Jesus is addressing pride, and we're going to see that in this upside-down kingdom, he's going to teach them about humility. If you have, again, if you ever know, that's the blank. Upside-down kingdom is going to be looking at humility. So Jesus here doesn't condemn these disciples and tell them how horrible they are and cast them from his presence. He doesn't bring condemnation. He lovingly and gently instructs them and brings them along. Verse 35. And he, Jesus, sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. All right, so here's some more upside-down kingdom thinking. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be the most important, you have to be the servant of everybody else. This is self-denying, cross-bearing humility that Jesus is getting at here. This is what he said before in, in chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what my kingdom is all about, Jesus says. And he explains further with this child, right? Now it's important for us to know that at this time, the child was one of the least important members of society. Okay? Now they were in a house, so there were kids around, so he he uh, brings in one of these child, but least important member of society, right? Jesus doesn't cast him away. He scoops him up in his arms lovingly, and he flips their thinking, right? If you receive such a child as this, as what I have in my arms, you receive me, the Christ, the Savior. And not only do you receive me, but you receive the one who sent me. You receive God the Father, right? And we see this phrase here. We see this, whoever receives one such child in my name, in my name. We'll see this phrase a few times throughout our passage. In other words, on my behalf, with my authority. So if you receive the least, on my behalf, with my authority. So we're receiving as an ambassador for Jesus in his kingdom, representing his kingdom, right? Now, at Pine Grove, we receive children well, right? We love them. We include them as service. We value them. But Jesus' teaching here goes beyond children. He's really getting to the least important people, who would be considered the least, right? The least important of society. So if we were to think about that for us, let me ask you, who is the least important in our society? Who are those people? Who's the least important 
person that you come in contact with on a regular basis. Maybe it's the coworker who's kind of socially awkward, right? Maybe it's the kid at school who gets bullied and who is the easy target for others. Maybe it's the employee at the store who's assigned to cleaning the toilets and, and taking out the garbage. Right? So what is Jesus saying here? If you really want to be part of me, if you really want to be something in my kingdom, those are the people that you receive. That's who you serve. Right? Living in an upside-down kingdom means that when everyone else is in the break room talking about the, the game from Sunday, that you choose to leave that and go to the man sitting at his desk all alone who's saddened and grieving over the struggling marriage that he's in. Living in an upside-down kingdom means when that kid at school is being picked on and bullied, you choose to step in the middle of it and say, knock it off, that's enough. Living in an upside-down kingdom means when you spot the overlooked employee at the store, you take time to go over and say, hey, I know it's the work you're doing. Thank you for doing that. Keep up the good work. And we have these opportunities. Here's a, here's a good example, a real-life example. My wife, Becky, multiple times has encountered, she's witnessed customers tearing into the cashier at Aldi, bringing them to tears. Multiple times. And so, she's had the opportunity to speak a word of encouragement to somebody who is hurting in that moment. That's upside-down kingdom thinking. And so these disciples are to love and care for people because Jesus loves and cares for people. Greatness in this upside-down kingdom is determined by humble service, not by exalted status. Humble service. So will you lay aside your pride? Will you take up your cross to follow Jesus? So we have pride versus humility. Worldly kingdom says, I'm the best, I'm the greatest. Upside-down kingdom says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2, 3. So here's a question to ponder this morning. Where are you holding on to pride? Where are you holding on to pride? As we continue on, we see that Jesus now is addressing division. All right, he's addressing division. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. All right? So Jesus is now teaching about their pride and teaching them humility, and John thinks this is a good time to speak up. And he, more pride comes through. More pride comes out, right? Somebody's casting out, out demons in Jesus' name, in your name, notice that. So it's in the, the power, in the authority of Jesus. 
So was he blaspheming Christ? No. He's working for Jesus, right? So what's the problem? Well, he's not in the club, right? He's not part of us. He can't do these things. I'm guessing there's some jealousy among some of the disciples who tried to cast the demon out of that other boy that we learned about last week and weren't able to do it. But now this other outsider is casting out demons. Jealousy. Right? John is basically implying Jesus is ours, not yours. Right? There's a pride of exclusion here. A pride of exclusion. I don't want you to be successful because you might make me look bad. Right? I'm really more concerned about me than I am about God's kingdom and his glory. So, have you ever secretly wished that another church would struggle so that we could look more successful? Have you ever hoped that no one would go to somebody else's Bible study or small group or youth group so that yours could be more popular, more well-attended? Have you ever hoped someone else's success would go unnoticed so that your success could get more praise? You're not part of us, right? You're not part of us. That's the first problem with John, what he's addressing here. Second thing is that it's coupled with this attitude of, look what we're doing for you, Jesus, right? We tried to stop him. We're here for you, Jesus. We're doing your work. And yet this is a self-righteousness, self-focus. And we can be so prone to self-righteous living as well, right? I'll do this or that for you, Jesus. Then Jesus will value me. Then he'll accept me. Then he'll be proud of me. If I do enough of this stuff, then Jesus will really love me. Friends, our value, our worth is not in what we do. It's in who we are, who Christ has made us. Jesus is the one who gives us value. The things we do are an overflow, an outpouring of that. But here, John, the other disciples, they want to divide. They want to be exclusive. They want to make sure that they are in a good position. And so in this upside-down kingdom, we're going to see that Jesus desires unity. Unity. Look at verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And so Jesus says, hey, look, guys, we're on the same team here, right? That person is doing ministry in my name, in my power, in my authority. Why would you try to stop him? And then in verse 40, the one who is not against us is for us. It's very similar, but it's kind of the opposite wording, but it's saying the same thing as what we read in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30. It says, whoever is not with me is against me. Right? So there's two sides here. You're with and for Jesus, or you are against him and opposed to him. So which side are you on? There's no middle ground here. 
right? You cannot be complacent and be for Jesus, be living for his glory and for his kingdom. And so here we have to be careful of a judgmental spirit towards others who may be doing things differently than we do or who look differently than we do. Jesus' Jesus's desire is that we would have a spirit of unity among us in this upside-down kingdom. Verse 41, Jesus is continuing here, same thought. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so Jesus here is looking for humble acts of service, serving other believers, serving in his name, deeds done in faith have significance. Let that be an encouragement to you this morning. Your deeds done in humbleness and submissiveness and in service to others have significance in God's kingdom. It may not be an upfront position. It may not be a pastor or an elder, but everything, every deed done in faith for God's kingdom has significance. But notice where the focus is. You belong to Christ. The focus is on Jesus, right? That's the focus. The focus is off of self, and it's on Jesus, the great one. And so we are to carry out these humble acts of service, right? This man had been casting out demons, right? But this man belonged to Jesus. He was acting in faith, and he will not lose his reward, Jesus says. So this self-sacrificing, upside-down kingdom, gospel ministry that we are called to is for all who belong to Christ. It's for every one of us who belong to Christ, not just for some who have a position. That includes you if you belong to Christ. This is work that you should somehow be participating in. And so what's your part? How are you participating Jesus gives us an example of service, of serving others, laying down his life for others. And so if we are for Jesus, we are to follow along and do the same. Not to earn favor with God, but as an outpouring of who he is and what he has done in us, as an outpouring of our faith. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. All right? Now, I believe verse 42 is tied to the verses that we just read, right, right above it. Okay, these little ones are those of weaker faith, those who maybe are more immature in their faith, haven't been believers as wrong, right? I believe he's referring back to this other person who was casting out demons in Jesus' name, right? So in other words, we are not, don't turn away other believers who are maybe still immature, still weak in their faith by your judgment on them, right? We can easily do that. You have the ability to cause serious spiritual damage in the life of a new believer or in the life of an immature believer. Think about your kids, right? Young kids, we can cause serious spiritual damage in their lives if we're not careful. And so there's a, a, a warning here. Causing another to sin is a great offense, right? If you don't understand that, look what Jesus says. 
you would be better off dead. You'd be better off drown in the sea than to cause somebody of, of weak faith to sin. That would be better off for you. And so we have this division versus unity. And so a worldly kingdom says, I will put down anyone who thinks differently than me. I won't allow them to have their way, and I'm going to hold on to my position of authority. Right? But this upside-down kingdom says, Ephesians 4.3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so our question here to ponder is this. How might you have contributed to division within the body of Christ rather than pursuing unity? So division versus unity. Next, we're going to see that Jesus is addressing sin with his disciples. He's addressing sin, and we're going to see that this upside-down kingdom is going to be marked with repentance. With repentance, okay? Verse 43. Jesus continues, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. All right, here's the point. Sin really matters. Sin really matters. It is a big deal, right? Especially this continual, habitual sin. It needs to stop. That's what Jesus is saying, right? There must be an end to it. There needs to be radical measures taken against it. So what approach do you take to the temptations to sin that come into your life? How do you handle those temptations when they come across your path? Jesus says you better not be playing around with it. Right? You better not be playing around with it. You need to amputate whatever it is that causes you to sin. No matter what the cost, right? cut it off, get rid of it. Now, please understand, Jesus is being figurative here. Don't come to church next week without hands and without feet and without eyes and somebody wheeling you in in a shopping cart. That's not what he's talking about. Figurative, right? Figurative. And at the same time, this is not a light thing. This is not a light thing. It's a, not a casual approach to sin. This is a severe seriousness to this. Jesus says there need to be amputation, a complete removal, a cutting away. This is as what Romans chapter 2 would talk about, a circumcision of the heart, right? A circumcision of the heart, cutting it away, getting rid of it. So this upside-down kingdom now is marked by repentance, a continual turning away from sin and turning to God a removing of that which tempts you in order so that you can serve God more fully. Repentance is a choice of the will done in the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our power for this. This is our dying and rising again, so to speak. 
right? Laying aside our sin and following after Christ. This is this upside-down kingdom. Now, if you're one who this morning recognizes a habitual, continual sin in your life, can I just tell you, you, you need help with that. You aren't going to be able to do it alone. So talk to one of the elders, talk to a pastor, talk to a friend, and get some help with that. All right? Now, again, to be clear, all of this, this repentance, this cutting away, this eliminating, this is all done because of God's grace. All right? It's stemming from faith. It's not trying to earn a right place with God. It's stemming from faith. But we can see here that there are eternal consequences to these things, right? If you don't deal appropriately with your sin, where do you go? Hell. That's what it says, right? You go to hell. So you can figuratively keep both of your hands. You can figuratively keep both of your feet and both of your eyes and be thrown into hell to face eternal judgment. You can keep all the temptation in your life, all the sin in your life you want. But if you do, you don't belong to Christ. You don't belong to Christ, and you will face that judgment. And that's what verse 48 is talking about. I know it's a little bit strange. We won't get into it too deep. Where the worm does not die, I believe that's talking about internal. The fire is not quenched. I believe that's talking about external things, okay? But that's a, that's a quote from Isaiah 66, uh, 24. Um, but it's a verse talking about a final judgment. Final judgment, okay? There's going to be internal and external judgment. There'll be so for those who do not take this sin seriously, who do not deal with it appropriately, there will be a great, final, divine judgment of sin. But there's good news. There's this gospel, right? We see this all within God's grace within the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection to save sinners from this, right? Jesus came to save humble, repentant sinners, to save from that judgment and to give life. And we see that in these verses, right? Look at verse 43. There's a, it's better for you to enter life. Verse 45, you can enter life. Verse 47, enter the kingdom of God, Right? There is a great salvation here from this judgment that we deserve, but Jesus has saved us from this. These things, this life, this kingdom of God is in stark contrast to hell where there is eternal judgment. Instead, there is eternal life. There is eternal blessing, right? Jesus came to save sinners. He took that judgment on himself for you and for me when he died on the cross, right? He rose again from the dead, to bring eternal life. Those things are ours through faith in Jesus, through repentance in these things. Okay, verse 49, as we wrap this up, kind of a difficult verse. For everyone will be salted with fire. Again, we won't dive into it. I believe that's saying that we are either refined by fire now as a living sacrifice for God, or we will be facing a final judgment fire in, in hell, eternal. Verse 50, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So, again, we are to have 
this purifying, preserving faith. That's what this salt is, right? A purifying, preserving faith. This is a, in the summary of this self-sacrificing humility. It will lead to peace with one another, right? Because if we take this approach, there's no longer arguing about who's the greatest and who's the best. There's peace. There's no longer you're over there and you're not in the club. There's peace and there's unity. And so that's what we see here. So we see this contrast in these verses, sin versus repentance. A worldly kingdom says, I can do whatever I want, whatever I feel like. It's to my benefit, it's my decision. This upside-down kingdom says this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 6, 11. So here's a question for you to ponder. Sin versus repentance. What is the sin in your life that needs repentance? All right. And what temptation do you just need to cut off and amputate from your life? So as we summarize this upside-down kingdom of God, it begins with acknowledging Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior. Then we see the glory of Jesus as they did on the mountain, that he is supremely worthy. There's a coming to faith in him, a belief in Jesus. There's recognition of his death and resurrection for salvation. There's recognizing that you and I are called to the same, to a dying and rising of sorts. And then there's a choosing to follow, to be part of this great kingdom that Jesus calls us to. And so this morning, will you choose to follow? Will you live for Jesus? in this upside-down kingdom. Let's pray. Father, again, we praise you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Help us to be bold and aggressive in attacking our pride and our division and our sin. Help us to come to you in this upside-down kingdom thinking that would penetrate our minds more and more and it would conform our lives more and more, that we would gain humility, that we would work together in unity, and that we would be humble, repentant sinners, people who repent and take sin seriously. And so, God, as we do these things, may you receive much glory. In Jesus' name, amen.